continues to amaze us. Uh, this series, it's called Ten Unpreached Sermons, has pointed out to us that there are a number of stories that we don't necessarily pick up on as we make our way through Scripture. Uh, during the first six parts of the series, uh, I've had a number of people come up to me and say, I, I never saw that before in the Bible. And many times, they're, they're just tiny portions of Scripture. Last week, the message was called The Bald Man's Bears. It's just two verses in Scripture. And yet we believe it's all there for a reason. It's not random. It's not inconsequential. We believe that the whole of God's Word works together to show forth His glory to reveal His character and to proclaim the truth that opens the door of our heart and mind to Him. The series was born of an article by Chara Donahue, a freelance writer who was intrigued by the stories in the Bible that pastors seem to avoid because they're bizarre or strange. So we accepted the challenge picked up the gauntlet, and we've waded through six of them so far. Today is part seven. It's called Athaliah's Quest for Power. There's notes in your program if you like to follow along that way, blanks to fill out, that type of thing. We find Athaliah's story in the book of Second Chronicles. Second Chronicles comes right after First Chronicles. And right before the book that's named after my grandson, Ezra. Second Chronicles 22 and 23 is where we'll be hanging out today. Our story today is about Athaliah, queen of Judah. But again, as always, there's a backstory. Wisdom, they say, is known by her children. That's a very biblical way of saying the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Athaliah is no exception. She's the daughter, you see, of King Ahab and a woman of some infamy, Jezebel. We hear the name Jezebel and we immediately think of evil. The name Athaliah is a little less recognizable and yet she could give her mama a run for her money. The stage was set when Athaliah became the leverage in a relationship between the two parts of the divided kingdom of Israel. Her father Ahab, king of Israel, gave her to Judah's king Jehoram in marriage in an effort to forge an alliance. Sounds like we're watching an episode of Survivor. When Jehoram died, Ahaziah, their son, became king, and Athaliah, kind of the subject of our story today, moved into the role of queen mother. Verse 1 of chapter 22 of the book of 2 Chronicles says, And the inhabitants of Jerusalem made Ahaziah the youngest son in Jehoram's stead. So Jehoram had died, they made Ahaziah the king, for the band of men that came with the Arabians to the camp had slain all the eldest. That's a separate incident. 
it really doesn't have any relevance to what we're talking about except all the older brothers were slain, which, which made Ahaziah the heir to the throne. Forty and two years, verse 2 says, uh, was Ahaziah when he began to reign. He reigned one year in Jerusalem. His mother's name also was Athaliah, the daughter of Omri. Now in the original language of the Old Testament, it's the same word for granddaughter and daughter. In reality, Athaliah is the granddaughter of Omri. She's the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel. Verse 3 and Verse 3 says, He, meaning Ahaziah, also walked in the ways of the house of Ahab, for his mother, this is interesting, Athaliah, was his counselor to do wickedly. Verse 4, Wherefore he did evil in the sight of the Lord like the house of Ahab, for they were his counselors after the death of his father to his destruction. Now meanwhile, back at the ranch, Jehu was sent by God to purge the kingdom of of Judah. Verse 8 says, It came to pass that when Jehu was executing judgment upon the house of Ahab and found the princes of Judah and the sons of the brethren of Ahaziah that ministered to Ahaziah, he slew them. And he sought Ahaziah, and they caught him, for he was hid in Samaria. They brought him to Jehu. When they had slain him, they buried him. When Ahaziah was killed, only a year into his reign as king of Judah, his mother, Athaliah, daughter of Jezebel, went totally bonkers. She absolutely lost her mind. And verse 10 says, When Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah, saw that her son was dead, she arose and destroyed all the royal seed of the house of Judah. Now that's a very sterile way of saying she killed all the living male relatives. She killed all the possible heirs to the crown. She was attempting to eliminate every threat to her tenuous hold on the throne. There would be nothing that would stand in the way of Athaliah's quest for power. It was a terrible situation there in the land of Judah. The rulers were evil. The situation was troublesome. And the wheels seemed to be coming off. The average guy must have felt as though he had no control, no say, no influence. And it's easy to feel that way in our culture too. It's the feeling of powerlessness that can cause people to do desperate things. The people of Judah were under the the thumb of the evil rule of Athaliah. And it was was no holds barred. Evil ruled and evil reigned. Now we may not face the the bloodshed or the, the tyranny of Athaliah's quest for power. But the feeling of helplessness is, is just as real for some today. And it's not just one side of the political spectrum. Some feel as though Donald Trump and the Republicans are off the rails and he's running roughshod over all that we know to be good and true in the United States. On the other side of the coin, it's the view that the the Democrats are advocating for abortion and open borders and socialism and and it feels as though there's nothing we can do. We've come a long way from those 
13 original colonies. It's a big country now. Now each district of each state has a representative in Washington designed to keep us connected, designed to give us a voice. But most people have no idea who their representative is, much less know them personally. I'll give you a little quiz here. In Wisconsin, here in Superior, this side of the border, we're in the 7th district of Wisconsin. Uh, how many know who our representative is? Say it. I heard somebody say it. Sean Duffy, Republican representative. On the other side of the border, we have a lot of people from Duluth here and uh, over that way. Uh, it's the 8th district of Minnesota there. They have a, a, a representative that's a Democrat. What's his name? Nolan. Rick Nolan. So, very good. Some of you know. It, but it's very easy to feel detached and insignificant. It can feel hopeless. But we believe God was at work behind the scenes then, and we believe that He's behind the scenes at work today. So take heart, church, in this political season that we're in. And by the way, I think if I see one or two more commercials, I'll be ready to make a decision. <laughs> so take heart, church. God is not limited or compromised or struggling, but He is excruciatingly patient. And when it comes to politics, we ought not to be the angry ones. We can be passionate, we can be involved, but don't be angry. Don't lower yourself to the level of violence and profanity and vulgarity and infantile behavior demonstrated by the desperate. We see it on the national level, right down to the Duluth City Council meeting. We're losing our minds. Sometimes it feels as though chaos Reigns, And it must have felt that way in the kingdom of, of Judah. But God was at work. And as all the relatives of the late king Ahaziah were being slaughtered by Athaliah, one was being set apart for service. Verse 11 says, But Jehoshabeth, the daughter of the king, I know, I know see, one of the reasons these are unpreached, because they're like soap operas. And you've got you've to follow these, these trains of thought and the lives of these people in order to make sense out of it. So, hang with me. Jehoshabeth, the daughter of the king, took Joash, the son of Ahaziah, and stole him from among the king's sons that were slain and put him and his nurse in a bedchamber. So Jehoshabeth the daughter of King Jehoram, the wife of Jehoiada the priest, for she was the sister of Ahaziah. I mean, you got to you know, do the Ancestry.com thing. We should be spitting in a tube here and sending it in. Hid him from Athaliah so that she slew him not. Now, Jehoshabeth was the daughter of King Jehoram. Athaliah then would be her stepmother. And Jehoshabeth, with the help of her husband, Jehoiada the priest, managed to hide her infant nephew, Joash, in the temple. Verse 12, and he, and he was with them hid in the house of God, 
six years, and Athaliah reigned over the land. Now, no one would ever think of looking for the kid in the temple because the temple was so neglected and virtually abandoned at this point in the history of Judah. As, as far as the people of this era and this time were concerned, worship took place in the high places on the mountains. They were idolaters. Their God was not the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Their gods were Asherah and Baal. And today, here in Superior, Wisconsin, the Twin Ports, at least in Superior, I guess, we're told that on any given Sunday, 17% of the population are in church. The temple is virtually neglected, abandoned. Instead, the citizenry of the Twin Ports bow to the false gods of money and sports, sleep, pleasure. We put everything and anything before Sunday worship. Now, see, we say this stuff, and you're the ones that are here. I want to commend you for your attendance. I want to commend you for being a churchgoer. And many of you are here every week in rain, sleet, snow, and you're here. And I, I commend you for your attendance at church. It speaks well of you. Jehoiada was the priest, but his duties were limited as he served in an apostate land of Judah. So he turned his attention to raising and protecting Joash, the rightful heir to the throne of David and the kingdom of Judah. Meanwhile, Athaliah, the only female monarch of Israel or Judah, Deborah was a judge, reigned with an iron fist. Her reign of terror lasted six years, and all the while Ahaziah's son, Joash, infant son, was hidden away in the temple. Eventually, he was given the throne when he emerged from hiding under the tutelage of Jehoiada the priest at the ripe old age of seven. But what of Athaliah's quest for power? How could God allow such evil? And how does God allow such evil today? Now any answer that I give you this morning is inadequate if you're the one experiencing the adversity. But I believe the principle still holds true. It's one of the great questions of life, isn't it? Why do bad things happen to good people? Why is there such suffering in the world? For example, a a baby dies of crib death. A missionary is, is killed on the field. A mother of five little kids dies of cancer. A hardworking Dad loses his job when the plant closes. A, a school is terrorized by an active shooter. How do, you, how do you understand these things, much less explain them? Let me give you five reasons for adversity. Number one, life. We live in a fallen world. And... It's kind of a trickle-down effect. Romans 5.12 says, Wherefore, as, as by one man's sin, as by one man, sin entered the world, Adam, 
and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for all have sinned. I hate to be the bearer of bad news. You know me. I hate to be the bearer of bad news. But with life comes pain. It's, it's a fact. And we're left to deal with it. Life ain't fair. There are cycles and principles that are set into motion that we're, we're governed by. We live in a solar system where every, 80, or every uh, 76 years, I guess, uh, Halley's Comet rolls around. 2062. Stay tuned for that. And there are lifespans, and, and it's all part of the normal cycle of life. We don't, we don't know exactly how long each individual will live. And so when someone dies, in some ways we're, we're shocked and we grieve. But whether we live 40 years or 100 years, it's all part of the, the cycle of life. We live under certain natural laws like the law of gravity. If I, if I jump out of a moving car, there will be certain consequences that are not necessarily some great act of God or some divine pronouncement. It's just a consequence of the natural law that He put into place in the beginning. Matthew 5.45 says, He maketh the sun to rise on the evil and on the good. And He sends rain on the just and the unjust. There are universal cycles and seasons and principles that just come with life. The nature of the game. Hey, this ain't heaven. Right? It's a, it's a fallen world. So, put your big boy pants on and deal with it. Part of adversity is just life. Number two, why, why is there adversity? Consequences. If I drive drunk, I shouldn't be surprised when I'm pulled over for drunk driving. If I spend more money than I make, I can expect to be in debt. It's simply the consequence of my actions. Can a man take fire in his bosom? Proverbs 6 says, and his clothes not be burned. Sometimes adversity is the consequence of your own action, like smoking, for example. Whatever a man sows, the Bible says, that shall he reap. Other times, they're the consequences of someone else's actions, like secondhand smoke. Deuteronomy says, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the third and the fourth generation. So adversity can be the consequence of actions, whether it's ours, our own actions, or the actions of somewhere else. Sometimes it's just we're collateral damage. Another reason bad things happen is, get this, Christianity. It may be the cost of your faith. The Bible speaks of the, of the fellowship of His suffering. It's part of following Jesus. Now, some don't like to hear that. Some Christians follow Jesus waiting for the day that He makes their life better. What they fail to realize is that the Jesus that they follow is heading for the cross. And He calls us 
this Jesus, to mortify our flesh. He calls us to set aside the things of the world. He's calling us to give and to serve and to sacrifice. And He's calling us to to give more and to serve more and to sacrifice more as the day of His return draws closer. It's the fellowship of His suffering. Psalm 34, 19 says that the troubles of the righteous are many. And for some, the price of their faith, the price of Christianity has been significant. I remember some years ago in a small group setting, asking the the question rather flippantly, to be honest with you, what has being a Christian cost you? And I was shocked when someone said it cost them their marriage. And as they elaborated, they talked about how they had gotten married as two unsaved young adults. One of them was saved somewhere down the line, and the other never bought in, never followed, and, and eventually the one that was unsaved left. Others suffer what Scripture calls persecution for righteousness' sake. 2 Timothy 3.12 says, All that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. It makes you wonder, if you're not suffering persecution, I'll let you extrapolate the rest. It may be on the job, it may be in school, or maybe even within the family. Your faith can invite adversity and hardship. If ye be reproached for the name of Christ, 1 Peter 4 says, Happy are you. Why? For the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Is this on? For the, for the Spirit of glory and of God, the Spirit of, if you're reproached for the name of Jesus, the Spirit of God rests upon you. Think about that. On their part, He's evil spoken of, but on your part, He's glorified. Now, some mistakenly are motivated to serve Jesus to avoid suffering, when ironically, we often suffer because of Christianity. Another possible reason for our suffering is testing. It, it's to prove you... Per, now I've got a couple little uh, sub-points here under testing. And the first one is to prove you before Satan. Two of my favorite chapters in the Bible are Job 1 and Job 2. And the reason I like these two chapters is you get this behind-the-scenes look at what happens in the throne room of heaven. And in Job 1 and Job 2, you get two different examples of the angels coming before God. And and intermixed in those angels is, is Lucifer, is Satan himself. And God spots him, and God, and God says, Hey, Satan, what you been up to? And Satan says, I've been going to and fro over the face of the earth. And God says to Satan, in your travels, did you see my servant Job? Did you notice my servant Job? He's he's righteous, he loves me, he eschews evil. And Satan says, yeah, I noticed Job. 
He serves you and He loves you because you protect Him. But if you let me take a crack at Him, He will curse you to your face. And within limitations, God grants Satan the license to inflict Job. So why does adversity happen? Perhaps it's to prove you before Satan. Now another testing is to promote growth. James 1, 3, and 4 says, Knowing this, that the trying of your faith, the testing of your faith works patience. And let patience have her perfect work, that you may be perfect, that you may be entire, that you may be complete, that you may be mature, lacking nothing, wanting nothing. It's like testing is like, is like training camp in sports or boot camp in the military in order to grow, in order to become better, in order to be stronger, in order to be tougher. You must be tested. You must be proven. You must be confirmed. Adversity can do that. Another type of testing serves to purify you. 1 Peter 1.7 says that the trial of your faith being much more precious than gold. Let's stop there. Your faith being much more precious than gold, but now we make a, a metaphor with gold, an allegory with gold, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. It's the, it's the refiner's Fire the cauldron with the refiner sitting by attentively watching as the, the molten steel is, is heated and he watches intently for the perfect length of time till it gets to the perfect temperature so that it has its perfect temper. And the word temper means to harden, to strengthen by application of heat. For us, it means to strengthen through experience or hardship. And that only happens, church, as the heat is turned up. One last reason, number five, that bad things happen. So the first one, why do bad things happen? Number one was life. It's just life. Number two, consequences for actions, whether it's ours or someone else's. Number three, there's adversity that you endure because of your faith. And number four, it may be a testing of some sort. Number five, one last reason that bad things happen is the glory of God. God is, is often glorified in our trials. Our testimony shines brightest in our darkest hours. John 9, it's the story of the disciples uh, encountering the blind man. And they come to Jesus with a fascinating question. They asked him, saying, Master, who sinned? This man or his parents that, that he was born blind? Jesus gives a fascinating answer. He says, neither. Now really the answer is both. But he answered neither because their sin had nothing to do with his blindness. So then why was he born blind? Jesus says, but that the works of God 
should be made manifest in him. Why do, why do bad things happen to good people? Why do we suffer adversity? It may be simply for the glory of God. So let me recap. Five reasons for adversity. It's the, number one, it's the nature of the game. It's life in a fallen world. Number two, it may be the consequences of our own actions. Perhaps it's the consequence of someone else's action. Number three, it may be, why, why do you experience adversity? It may be the cost of your Christianity. Number four, it may be a time of testing. And, you, and listen, when it comes to a time of testing, and we have some teachers in here, I'm looking at them right now, they know this to be true. When it comes to a time of testing, they know this, you don't get the answers during the test. Number five, it may be so God can receive glory. God may be glorified in the miracle. Or God may be glorified in how you endure the trial. Listen, sometimes He calms the storm, and sometimes He, he calms His child, the song says. And either way, He receives the glory. Out of evil, good. Now listen to the end of the story here. It's Second Chronicles. Now I'm reading in chapter 23. It says, The seventh year of Jehoiada the priest, in the seventh year of Jehoiada the priest, he strengthened himself and took captains of hundreds. And they went about in Judah, and they gathered the Levites out of all the cities of Judah, and the chief of the fathers of Israel. And they came to Jerusalem. And all the congregation made a covenant with the king. Now, now this next phrase I think is very important, easy to miss. In the house of God. It had all been neglected for years. Now they're making a covenant with the king in the house of God. And he said unto them, Behold, the king's son shall reign, as the Lord have said, has said of the sons of David. Jehoiada, the priest, reinstituted temple worship, and the work of the Levites. Verse 8. So the Levites and all Judah did according to all things that Jehoiada the priest commanded. Verse 11. They brought out the king's son. They put on him the crown. They made him king. And Jehoiada and his sons anointed him. And they said, God save the king. Verse 12. Now when Athaliah heard the noise of the people running and praising the king, she came to the people into the house of the Lord and she said, and she looked, and behold, uh, the king entering in, and the princes and the trumpets of the king, and all the people of the land rejoiced and sounded with trumpets, and the singers and the instruments of music, and Athaliah rent her clothes, and she said, Treason! Treason! And Jehoiada the priest said, Don't slay her in the house of the Lord. Verse 15, they laid hands on her when she was come to the entering into the horse gate by the king's house. They slew her there. Verse 17, all the people went to the house of Baal, one of the false gods, and break it down, and they break his altars and the images in pieces, and they slew Matin, the priest of Baal, before the altars. Also Jehoiada appointed offices in the house of the Lord by the hand of the priests 
of the Levites whom David had distributed in the house of the Lord to offer the burnt offerings of the Lord as it's written in the law of Moses and with rejoicing and with singing as it was ordained by David. Verse 21, And all the people of the land rejoiced, and the city was quiet after they had slain Athaliah with the sword. Why do bad things happen? From a hotel window in Las Vegas, a gunman kills 58 and injures over 800. A synagogue in Pittsburgh, just yesterday, another shooting. It's not a God thing. It's not a good thing. But out of evil... Good can come. Randy with cancer. God didn't orchestrate it. God didn't plan it. But out of evil, good. I don't pretend to understand it. I choose to believe it by faith. Romans 8.28 says, We know all things work together for good to them that love God, to them that are the called according to His purpose. It doesn't say that all things are good. It says that all things work together for good. Not not for everyone, by the way, but for those who love God and are the called according to His purpose. As Athaliah began her quest for power, the land of, of Judah was far from God. It must have seemed hopeless and desperate for the people. They watched in horror as Athaliah slaughtered the heirs of the throne and then ruled with hate and cruelty. For six long years they waited on the Lord. For six years they prayed. For six years they suffered. And then Joash emerged as as the boy king. And Jehoiada the priest restored temple worship. They couldn't see it from the other side of the trial, but out of evil, good. Joash ruled well for most of his time as king. And it was a turning point in the history of the the land of Judah. And after Joash, Amaziah ruled, and, and he was good for most of his reign. And Amaziah was followed by two kings who served God with all of their heart, Uzziah and Jotham, and the land prospered. Ahaz was next in the, in the royal line, and he was evil. But then came one of the best kings in the history of Judah, a man by the name of Hezekiah. So after several evil kings and Athaliah's evil quest for power, five of six kings were God-fearing men who for the most part ruled well. Out of evil, good hindsight's 2020 time has a has a way of giving us an overview that we lack in the moment that's why it's a journey of faith but what do we but what do we know we know that god sees the big picture and we know that he's a he's a good god and we know that he will use the situation for our good and for His glory.
So we trust Him. And out of evil, good. Would you bow your head with me this morning? Lord, I know that for the ones that are in the midst of a trial, that sermon was so inadequate. It doesn't solve any of the problems. I don't even know if it makes it any easier to understand. But it at least gets us back to the point of faith and trust where we just have to trust the nature of God we believe he's all loving we believe you're all loving we believe you're all powerful and so we trust that you have a divine purpose that's bigger than we are and whether or not we understand it doesn't really change the facts. And so we just begin to recognize that adversity is part of living in a fallen world. And we trust you in the midst of it. And you're doing something in us in the midst of it all. We're having to trust you more. We're having to look to you perhaps in ways that we wouldn't if everything was going our way. You're drawing us close to yourself. We're learning what it means to depend on you. We're learning what it means to look to you in the midst of our trial. We're closer to you, perhaps, because of the adversity. And just for that, we can say, out of evil, But Lord, I pray for the ones that are in the midst of a trial today. I pray, Lord, that you would be their answer and their hope and their refuge. That you would be their healer and their provider. Lord, that you would set the captives free. Lord, that you would have your way in the midst of our adversity. Lord, that somehow in the midst of our trial, someone would see how we're handling it and they would say, how can you do that? What's different about you? And we could say, nothing really except the fact that I've put my hope and my faith in the person of Jesus Christ. The one who came 2,000 years ago died on a cross so that all of my sins could be forgiven. And that understanding starts with that cross 2,000 years ago. That was the day that Jesus demonstrated how much he loves you. And so we put our hope and our faith in that. I know that my righteousness is as filthy rags. But I know that I'm saved because of what Jesus did for me. And I put my hope and my faith and my trust in you, Jesus. Holy Spirit, I pray that you'd impart that to these folks here today. That if there's one here that doesn't know you as Lord and Savior, they would begin to inquire about the cross. What is it about the cross that enables me to live free? 
Lord, in the midst of our adversity, we look to you, the author and the finisher of our faith. And even in the midst of our adversity today, we look to the heavens and we say, we love you, Jesus. Regardless of our situation, regardless of our circumstance, regardless of our checkbook balance, regardless of the last report from the doctor, regardless of the state of our relationships, we say, I love you, Jesus. I love you with all of my heart. My faith in you doesn't hinge on answered prayer. doesn't hinge on my level of prosperity. I love you, period. I will serve you, period. I will be the man that you've called me to be as the Holy Spirit helps me. And I thank you for that privilege. In Jesus' name.